0: you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed
1: good morning and welcome to face the nation i'm margaret brennan We have a lot to get to today, but we begin with breaking news from Buffalo, New York, where an 18-year-old male is in police custody following a mass shooting that killed 10 and injured three others. That massacre is being investigated by the Justice Department as a hate crime and an act of, quote, racially motivated violent extremism. President Biden referred to it as an act perpetrated in the name of white nationalist ideology, and he has called for an end to hate-fueled domestic terrorism. CBS News correspondent Nancy Chen reports. A shooter, a mass shooter. A
2: frantic scene after a gunman opened fire at a top supermarket Saturday afternoon, starting in the parking lot. Police say the heavily armed suspect shot four people outside, killing three before moving inside the store.
3: When I first saw him shooting, he shot a woman, he shot a deacon, he shot another woman, and then he went in the store and started shooting again.
2: That's when police say he encountered a retired police officer working as a security guard who fired multiple shots that hit the gunman but didn't impact him because of his tactical gear. The suspect then killed the guard. Officers say the suspect held a gun to his own neck after encountering police but eventually surrendered.
4: This was pure evil. It was straight up racially motivated hate crime.
2: Of the 13 people shot, 11 were black. The suspect, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, is believed to have posted a hate-filled manifesto shortly before the shooting, which he also live-streamed on the social media platform Twitch, authorities say. A law enforcement source told CBS News the suspect allegedly yelled racial slurs during the attack. To see
5: that sense of security shattered by an individual... A white supremacist who has engaged in an act of
2: terrorism. Gendron is from Conklin, New York, about three and a half hours from Buffalo. He was arraigned hours after the attack on a first-degree murder charge, pleading not guilty. A first-degree murder charge carries a sentence of life in prison without parole if convicted. The suspect is being held without bond and is set to appear in
1: court again on Thursday. Margaret. Nancy Chen, thank you. We want to go now to the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Good morning to you, Governor.
5: Good morning. I'm happy to be here, to be on the show, but it's a very tragic day for all
1: of us here in western New York. It's my hometown of Buffalo. Well, our condolences to you and to that community. Are you concerned about further violence in your state?
5: Well, we are taking proactive measures to make sure that we're monitoring all social media platforms because this, this information was out there. This was on a manifesto that was written a while back. And so we're very concerned about what other information is perpetrated out there on social media platforms and are out there being disseminated globally. So this information from yesterday's attack is already out there. It was live streamed. The uh, The intent of this individual was telegraphed in advance. So I'm calling on social media platforms to be making sure that they're doing a better job monitoring the hate speech that's out there, especially when it's directed against populations and comes under the guise of white supremacy, terrorism, which is exactly what happened here in Buffalo.
1: I want to come back to that in a moment, but I want to ask about the weapon that this shooter used. Um, You've said it was legally obtained. You've also said that the shooter had been at one point under the surveillance of medical authorities because of past comments he had made about carrying out a shooting. How was he allowed to buy and to hold on to that weapon?
5: that is exactly what's being investigated now i understand that he wrote something when he was in high school and that uh... that was being investigated so we're gonna to get to the bottom of that
1: so it's it's possible that he should not have been sold that weapon is that an pr- oversight in the state Well.
5: No, we don't know that. We don't know that right now, but I'm going to get to the bottom of it and find out right now. This would have happened uh, a little while back. He's 19 years old. Apparently, he was investigating when he was a high school student, brought to the attention of the authorities. He had a medical evaluation based on something he had written in school. And so we're going to find out what happened in the aftermath.
1: I understand. Um, I know you just mentioned going online and taking what's out there in the social media space seriously. You've called it a feeding frenzy for white supremacy. How do you actually regulate this without impeding on free speech? You have a number of media and social media companies with big offices in your state. Specifically, what are you asking them to do?
5: No, we want them to stay in our state. We also want them to be more vigilant and use the resources they have Uh, to hire more people, uh, change their algorithms, be able to identify the second that this hate speech appears and let there be a determination by law enforcement quickly. Law enforcement also monitors this as well. I mean, we have the FBI monitoring. We also have state police. So we need a multifaceted approach, but need vigilance, not just law enforcement, but also from the platforms that are allowing this to spread. They have
1: a responsibility as well. The Justice Department has called this an act of racially motivated violent extremism. You used a sharper word. You said white supremacist terrorism. I know your state classifies assault based on race or religion as a terror attack. There's no federal statute that does that. Should there be?
5: Yes, federal terrorism, there are domestic terrorism laws on the books. This can be prosecuted under state or federal laws right now. It started with our district attorney at the state level. So this individual is not going to see the light of day again, whether it's under federal uh, prosecution or state under our domestic terrorism laws or just murder one. This person murdered 10 innocent victims in our community just yesterday.
1: Governor, good luck to you. Thank you for your time this morning.
5: Thank you very much.
1: We turn now to the mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor, and our our thoughts, our condolences are with you and your community. How are you all handling this? Thank you, Margaret.
3: It is obviously very painful, very raw, very fresh. We're wrapping our arms around the families of those whose lives were lost. We're standing strong as a community and working to not let this horrible act of hate detract from us being a loving, warm, welcoming community.
1: The shooter was allegedly motivated by white supremacist ideology. I know that you are the first African American mayor of Buffalo, which as a city has been called very segregated, if not one of the most in the country. Um, how do you all unite in the wake of something like this?
3: We're a mid sized American city of over 278,000 people, and this part of the city, 80% African American but diverse, uh, with people of many different backgrounds living in this community. Uh, we are certainly saddened uh, that someone drove from hundreds of miles away, someone not from this community, that did not know this community, that came here to take as many black lives as possible, who did this in a willful, premeditated fashion, uh, planning this. uh, But we are a strong community, and we will uh, keep moving forward.
1: Is there an ongoing threat? Are your residents safe today?
3: Uh, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves are any residents safe in this country anywhere? We have to focus on sensible gun control. That said, after all of these mass shootings that have taken place in this country for different reasons, year in and year out, month in and month out, week in and and week out. Let Buffalo, New York, be the last place that this kind of mass shooting happens.
1: Mr. Mayor, good luck to you, and thank you for your time today.
3: Thank you very much, Margaret.
1: We turn now to the economy, and we learned this week that the cost of things like food and energy rose compared to last month. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg joins us now. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary.
6: Good morning. Good to be with you.
1: Um, As a representative of the administration, I do want to ask you a little bit about this reaction to the events in Buffalo. You were once a mayor. Uh, Do you think that there should be a federal law criminalizing domestic terrorism? The president used that phrase But that's not really on the books. I'll
6: let the president speak to the legal outlook with regard to the definition of terrorism. But whether it's called that legally or not, this was terrorism. This was hate. And this would be a good day for every politician in this country, left, right and center, every media figure in this country, left, right and center, to come out and unequivocally condemn white nationalism, so-called replacement theory. And any other hateful ideology that could have contributed to something like this before it happens again.
1: But should there be a federal statute that elevates things when those terms you just threw out there, should there be an association directly with terrorism?
6: Again, we don't know, obviously, all of the details that fit the legal definitions. What we know is that somebody traveled a long distance with an AR-15 to hunt human beings, to hunt black people. And we need to make sure that we root out that kind of hate. And, by the way, that we have a conversation about the availability of the kind of tactical weaponry that he seems to have had. Mm -hmm. And yet we seem to be having that conversation over and over and over again as a country.
1: I want to ask you a little bit um, on a personal note. Uh, We've been talking about this baby formula shortage nationwide that's been ongoing now for months. You have infants at home. Do you have problems getting hold of formula?
6: Yeah, this is very personal for us. we got two nine-month-old children's baby formula is a very big part of our lives. And like millions of Americans, we've been rooting around stores, checking online, getting in touch with relatives in other places where they don't have the same shortages to see what they can send over. And we figured it out. We're all set, at least for now. But I think about what that would be like if you're a shift worker with two jobs, maybe you don't have a car, you literally don't have the time or the money to be going from store to store. That's why this is such a serious issue, and that's why it's getting attention at the highest levels, including, of course, direct involvement by the president.
1: Well, and, and this is going to be an issue Congress takes up this week. I know the president said more action's coming, but this has been ongoing for months. There were supply chain issues already. Then you have the issue with this one plant, yeah. Abbott, um, whistleblower in September, February, the recall. It's May. Why has it taken so long? And why did the president on Friday seem to say that it was new information to him? He said, if we'd been better mind readers, I guess we could have done something earlier.
6: Well, look, the administration acted from day one after the recall, taking steps like creating more flexibility for the WIC program to help rebalance the availability of formula in the states. There are more actions that are underway, including looking at imports. But fundamentally, we are here because a company was not able to guarantee that its plant was safe, and that plant has shut down.
1: But that is the federal government's job as regulators to help ensure as safety of the As regulators, yes. Plant. But let's
6: be very clear. This is a capitalist country. The government does not make baby formula, nor should it. Companies make formula. And one of those companies, a company which, by the way, seems to have 40% market share, messed up and is unable to confirm that a plant, a major plant is safe and free of contamination. So the most important thing to do right now, of course, is to get that plant in Michigan up and running safely. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that's going on between the company and the FDA. It's gotta be safe, and it's gotta be up and running as soon as possible. But this is the difference between a supply chain problem, in other words, a a problem about moving goods around, And a supply problem, which has to do with whether they're being produced in the first place. Now, the administration's also been working with other companies to try to surge their production. That's led to an increase in production, which is helping to compensate. But at the end of the day, this plant needs to come back online safely.
1: And we'll have more on that later in the show. But because I know you're not the FDA commissioner, let me talk to you about the things you are involved more in, which is supply chain and procurement. Um, How is the administration making sure that those essential ingredients that are actually required for something like formula are actually available?
6: So a shortage of ingredients is not what led to the shutdown of the no, facility. No, it is right? a
1: factor that has led to price inflation is one of the factors, among many, that has been blamed for months of problems with baby formula, even before the recall in February.
6: Right. But America has the productive capacity to create the baby formula that we need. But you're talking to, to Europe right now. Right. But that's because, again, you've got four companies. Making about 90% of the formula in this country, which we should probably take a look at, and is that a monopoly? Yeah, I mean it's it's basically a series of monopolies that have added up into enormous market concentration. By the way, this is an issue the president has been talking about in area after area after area. Whether we're talking about fertilizer, uh, whether we're talking about other things in our agriculture sector or there more too, generally because yes.
1: this is also part of. I'm using the term food stamp program, but it's a part of a government assistance program. Which is
6: exactly why, again, from day one, after the recall- This isn't just a private
1: sector problem is my point. The federal government is directly involved in some of these arrangements. A
6: plant shutting down because a company can't assure that it is physically safe from contamination is the responsibility of the company. The responsibility of the regulator is to ensure, as they take steps to get it ready, that it will in fact be safe when it comes back online.
1: I have so much more to get to you as well. I want to get to you on inflation. Um, gas prices, highest ever price in the country, $445 a gallon national average. Are you asking Americans to drive less?
6: No, what we're asking Americans to do is to uh, obviously recognize that, that we're working this issue because we're feeling it too. Uh, I mean, all of us see that pain Should at Americans the pump. Americans drive less? Look, what we want to do is create options for Americans to be able to get where they're going more affordably. It's why we up the fuel economy standards so that by the 2026 model year, the cars will be so much more efficient if you have a gas car. Uh, that you, if you used to have to fill up uh, four times a month, it might be three now. Of course, we're also working to make electric vehicles more affordable uh, because that has a huge benefit, uh, especially in terms of uh, protecting uh, families from these kinds of uh, uh, price volatility. Those battery components
1: are also a supply chain issue.
6: Right. So are we going to take that as an excuse to do nothing and, and do the same thing forever? Or are we going to take that as an issue to work? We're taking it as an issue to work on, but right now, with existing technology, we know uh, that we can get more Americans into these vehicles. And we also know, right, that with gas prices uh, uh, on the rise and the president's acted with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, he's acted with ethanol flexibility to try to stabilize those prices. Mm -hmm. But we also know right now that we could be lowering other costs for Americans. And this is the most important thing I think we need to take a hard look at right now when we're fighting inflation with everything that we've got, Uh, that we made the case to lower the cost of insulin to $35 Mm -hmm. and faced basically unified Republican opposition, tried to lower the cost of prescription uh, drugs and were blocked from doing so. Uh, by congressional Republicans who then come around and want to talk about inflation yeah, the without American offering Republic a plan. they are interested
1: in things that didn't work, right, or didn't pass or aren't law. They want to know what's going on right now at their kitchen table and in their pocketbook. Well, I think
6: they want to know what Congress is going to do to lower their costs, and we're making that, the case for that I wanna, to happen.
1: I want to ask you about what the administration thinks in regard to what some congressional Democrats, like Senator Warren. Speaker Pelosi also says she's putting forward a bill about price gouging by companies and banning unconsciously excessive pricing. This has been called dangerous and misguided nonsense by the Obama administration economic advisor, Jason Furman. Do you agree that it is nonsense?
6: I'm not familiar with all of the details of that legislation. But what I can tell you from an administration perspective is that there is guidance going out to crack down on price gouging where we see it. If price gouging arises in the formula market or the fuel market. Look, one thing that we know is that we're in this moment, right, where Americans are feeling the pinch on product after product. And some companies have become ridiculously profitable, notably including oil companies, which have specifically said, they're not gonna use the permits and the production capacity that they have. Mm -hmm. Why would they? They're incredibly profitable right now. They're not complaining. They're not unhappy about the situation. The public is unhappy. The president is unhappy and we're taking action.
1: We're gonna leave it there. Secretary Buttigieg, good to have you here in person and good luck with the baby formula
0: Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
1: And we turn now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former Trump FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. I want to tap into your uh, perspective as someone who ran the FDA. You just heard uh, the administration's view that this baby formula shortage is really the failure of one company here um, and that the FDA isn't necessarily fully responsible for uh, ensuring things at that plant. I wonder how you Respond to that.
4: Well look, these were persistent problems that appear to have been handled poorly. Um, certainly by the company. Uh, FDA didn't exert all the oversight that they could have of that facility. There were known problems with that facility going back many years or findings on previous inspections. The agency had a 34-page whistleblower report in hand, making pretty serious allegations that there was data falsifications and informa- data falsification and information withheld from inspectors. Um, so these should have prompted more aggressive action earlier. I think now that that facility has been shut by Abbott and production isn't going on. It's going to be hard to clear the facility, um, the overhang of allegations of data falsification. are going to be the kinds of allegations that are hard for the agency to clear, even if they're not able to prove a causal relationship between the infections that we saw in children and the facility itself, which with which so far the agency hasn't been able to prove. And they may never be able to prove that.
1: Mm-hmm. You just said uh, that the FDA didn't do all it could. We know they didn't inspect the Abbott facility back in 2020. Um, they stopped. Inspecting some places during the pandemic that weren't mission critical. Isn't baby formula mission critical? How does a facility not get inspected by the FDA?
4: Well, look, it is mission critical. And during the government shutdown, we actually preserved inspections of infant formula plants because of the risk associated with those facilities. When that you facility were in probably office. should have been inspected, especially when I was in office, especially given the fact that there had been prior findings there. The fact that FDA went into that facility this year and found five different strains of coronavirus—that that is a serious concern. It doesn't appear to have been a state-of-the-art facility based on the findings in that 483. Um, so they should have been under closer supervision. Look, we have, we have sort of the worst of both possible worlds right now. We have a regulatory scheme that's stringent enough. That does create obstacles to getting into the market for new entrants. There's only been one new entrant in the last 15 years. That's a domestically based manufacturer, a company, Heart. But at the same time, it doesn't provide stringent enough oversight of the resulting oligopoly. Three companies control 80 percent of the market to ensure that there's no snafus that can cause shutdown in those facilities. And so when you do have a shutdown, when the market's that concentrated, it creates these distributed shortages that we're seeing right now that are very hard to resolve. They're going to eventually need to get that facility reopened. The yeah. timeline for that is very unclear right now.
1: And that's what I wanted to ask you. I'm sure the FDA commissioner will be questioned about that on Capitol Hill this week. But you said it's a broken market and po- you're pointing to regulation failures. That whistleblower report uh, said they failed to maintain proper records and released untested baby formula. There's all sorts of allegations in here. Does this sound like criminal behavior to you?
4: Potentially, and that whistleblower report was sent to the head of the Office of Criminal Investigations at FDA, so it does appear to be a sophisticated whistleblower. Remember, this division at FDA is nine people, and it was even fewer people when I was there. It's grown in recent years. And we made some budget requests to increase the size of that group. So the entire industry in this country is overseen by nine people. This has been an under-resourced part of the agency for a very long time. And that's contributing, I think, to these challenges that the agency is facing, trying to exert more vigorous and more efficient oversight. Um, Those allegations are going to be very hard to clear. And another issue may be that the people who the whistleblower has implicated, and FDA has interviewed that whistleblower, Mm -hmm. may be the same people now making representations to the agency about the safety of that facility. And if that's the case... That's going to complicate issues.
1: Dr. Gottlieb, we've been talking about uh, the baby formula shortage. Um, I want to ask you about COVID, but just to pick up on something you said, I, I think you told me there are only nine people who oversee the entire baby formula industry in this country. Nine?
4: That's right. And I think, there, I think there were, I believe there were three when I started at FDA. We got some more resources for that group. There's been more resources added since then. And there's a budget request from the current administration to add four more people. But yeah, only nine people right now oversee, oversee the entire industry in the United States. And it was less than that just several years ago.
1: That's astounding. Um, let me ask you about COVID. Uh, we hit this horrendous milestone this week of one million deaths over the entire course of this pandemic. Right now, we're averaging about 326 deaths a week. So we've we've come a far way. But we heard from both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Walensky this week that they have started putting on masks when they go indoors once again. Um, There's concern about an uptick. What do you see in terms of trend lines? Where are we?
4: Well, look, we're definitely seeing a surge of infection, particularly in the Northeast and parts of the Mid-Atlantic right now. If you look at the modeling going on in those states, states like Connecticut, and New York, it does appear that the infections are peaking right now. And it's mostly a wave of infection driven by B2 and this new Omicron variant B2.121 that appears to be more uh, contagious and have more immune escape than prior variants of Omicron. It looks like most of the people who are getting infected aren't people who were previously infected with B1, but some portion of the 40 percent of people who escaped the prior wave of Omicron and are now getting caught by this current wave. I do believe that cases will continue to come down. Wastewater data uh, collected by cities does show overall cases coming down and that we shouldn't have a big wave of infection this summer, although there are models floating around the administration it does show a big wave of infection this summer. The bottom line is we didn't see that in 2020. We didn't see it in 2021 when B117 emerged in the spring. So the summer should be a backstop against continued spread of this variant, but it does pose a risk for the fall, and it's going to be important to learn whether or not the new, newly formulated vaccines that are now in development will cover this B2 variant well. Hopefully they will. I believe they will, but that remains to be seen.
1: So you re- reject the idea of a summer surge, even though scientists like Dr. Burks, who was on this program just a few weeks ago, uh, is predicting and seeing a trend line that makes her very concerned that could happen because it's happened before.
4: Yeah, and there is a model that the White House was briefed on last week that shows a big surge of infection in the summer, driven by B2 as it moves into the Midwest and the West. I mean, it is certainly possible, but other people disagree with that model. There is the potential that you see a slow burn through the summer. I think it's more likely that you're going to see infection levels come down. Remember, we thought that there was going to be a big surge last year in the summer with B117 when it emerged in the spring. And as we got into the later spring, infection levels came down. We had a relatively quiet June and July, and then Delta came along in late August and started to create a new wave of infection. I think that's probably the pattern we're going to see again, where June and July are relatively low. People do feel safe again. And then as we head into the late summer, probably yeah. B2.121 is going to emerge, or B2, mostly in the south.
1: Dr. Gottlieb, we'll be watching that. Thank you for your insight, as always. Well, voters in five states head to the polls for midterm primary elections this Tuesday, and those contests will determine which party candidates will be on the ballot in November. But it is the contest among Republicans in Pennsylvania that is attracting a lot of attention. Our Robert Costa tells us why.
8: Top Republicans are flocking to Pennsylvania in the final days of the state's red-hot Senate primary race, knowing the state will be a crucial battleground in this November's midterm elections.
6: Republican running for office says, I love
8: Donald Trump. No, no, no. I love Donald Trump even more. No, no, no. I have Donald Trump tattooed on my rear end. (laughs) And the top three contenders are all pitching themselves as champions of Trump's political legacy. But voters face a conundrum. Who exactly fits the bill? Television personality Dr. Mehmet Oz won Trump's endorsement last month. But Oz has since struggled to fend off two challengers. Retired hedge fund manager David McCormick, whose wife, Dina Powell, served in the Trump administration as a deputy national security advisor, and hard-right candidate a Kathy Barnett, whose fiery and deeply personal message on abortion has caught fire with grassroots conservatives.
1: But it definitely made me become very adamant about the sanctity of life. But
8: once polls in recent days showed Barnett jumping into the top tier, she also faced new and intense scrutiny of her past, including homophobic and anti-Muslim statements. Barnett is mostly denied and deflected, hoping to keep up her momentum. And on Saturday, at what was billed as her final campaign rally, Barnett spoke to supporters in Bucks County alongside Doug Mastriano, who was endorsed hours earlier by Trump in the race for governor. Stand behind the cone, please. But CBS News and others were refused entry. No access, no questions allowed. They
0: told us no or
8: alike. Trump has been watching her rise carefully and warned his supporters to stick with Oz, arguing Barnett, if nominated, will, quote, never be able to win in November. And her rivals are sounding the alarm. You've called Kathy Barnett a mystery person. What do you mean by that?
9: I call Kathy Barnett a mystery because every time she answers a question, she raises a bunch more questions. She's not transparent about so many aspects of a basic biography that we don't know who she is.
8: Would Kathy Barnett be a risky bet for Republicans in November? Well,
9: listen, um, I've gotten to know Kathy uh, on the campaign trail. I respect her, her story. Uh, but Kathy's been tested. She was tested in the last 24 months in a congressional seat, which she lost by 20 points.
8: But the race remains a toss-up with voters divided. For Face the Nation, this is Robert Costa reporting from Philadelphia.
1: We turn now to the war in Ukraine. Senior foreign, foreign correspondent Charlie daggett has the latest on the diplomatic front and the battlefield. Charlie?
10: Good morning, Margaret. The Ukrainian government is claiming a key victory in the battle for Kharkiv. And with Finland now on the verge of joining NATO, President Vladimir Putin faces the prospect of sharing an 800-mile border with a NATO partner. Finland today formalized its intention to apply for NATO membership with Sweden likely to follow suit in the days ahead.
8: We have today a historic day. Finland will maximize its security
10: President Putin has already warned the Finnish president he's made a mistake in joining the alliance. It comes as Russia has faced significant losses, pulling back from Ukraine's second largest city of Kharkiv. But the shelling continues. 67-year-old Vera Kosolopenko lost everything to a Russian missile. This was my home, she said. Yesterday, it was burned down. Russia has now turned its firepower on eastern Ukraine's industrial Donbass region, targeting infrastructure, bridges, oil refineries, warehouses. But standing here, looking at the size of this crater in the middle of a dirt road in a quiet residential neighborhood, it's hard to know exactly what the Russians were aiming for. The sheer devastation caused by an airstrike in Bakhmut that tore homes apart, leaving residents homeless and furious. We need help, a woman shouts in despair. Everything is destroyed, broken. Salvaging what's left of their homes and their lives. British military intelligence reports that despite that kind of bombardment, Russia has failed to achieve substantial territorial gains in the past month. And it's likely Russia has lost around a third of the ground forces it committed to the invasion of Ukraine. Margaret?
1: Charlie Daggett, thank you. We'll be right back.
7: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We want to return now to the economy and the financial challenges facing this country. We turn to the former CEO and current senior chairman of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, who joins us from Watermill, New York. Good morning to you. Uh,
11: good morning, Margaret.
1: You know, Americans haven't experienced inflation like this in 40 years now. And the prices year over year are pretty incredible when you look at them. Gas up 44 percent. Eggs 23 percent increase year over year. There's spillover into the services, too, now. I mean, you look at hotel prices, 23 percent increase. Airlines over 30. What does all of this indicate to you?
11: Well, wages, well, I'll tell you how we got here. We had this massive exogenous event covid lockdowns all around the world and at the time that this was uh at this was beginning it was a huge crisis and i would say you say worse than 40 years kind of unprecedented that everywhere in the world all locked down at the same time in response there was a massive uh, public policy um response and um to overwhelm it, and it was a little bit of fighting the last war in some ways, because in the financial crisis, you recall, the feeling in the aftermath was it took a long time to recover from that. So this time we were going to go big, and we went big, and that created a lot of liquidity, and all those dollars are change uh, are chasing um, are chasing assets.
1: Mm-hmm. So so
11: we have too much growth, too much stimulus,
1: too much growth, too much stimulus. So so you agree with the San Francisco Fed when they when they point to things like all the. Sp- Fiscal spending uh, adding to inflation.
11: Sure. Now, again, um, at the time, it was very uncertain. And the most important thing was to not have it was to not lose all those jobs and have a massive crisis. And so they reacted. And I think they reacted sensibly with what they knew at the time. Mm -hmm. And you can argue about that, but that's all with the benefit of hindsight.
1: Right. Well, let's talk about what's happening now to try to control it. So it it is the Federal Reserve's job. You know this. But for our audience, you know, it's the central banker's job to control inflation here. Chairman Powell said getting it down to two percent is going to involve some pain. What what does that indicate to you? Um, And do you think the Fed is doing what is needed right now?
11: Well, the object is, you know, there's a there's an imbalance, too much demand. And what you have to do is you have to slow down that demand. You have to slow down the economy. And so they're going to have to raise rates. They're going to have to curtail, hopefully, reduce the number of positions that are unopened because they, um, and increase the size of the labor force. And that's going to involve some pain. And the real pain is not so, is partly what the Fed is going to do. But it's just that this inflation some of it is sticky it's going to be you know we have something like eight percent inflation some of that is transitory some of that is transitory will go away you know eventually the war in the ukraine will be over some of the supply chain uh shocks will go away um but uh some of it will be a little bit stickier and it'll be with us for a while and while we're talking about this in the macro sense overall for individuals and certainly the individuals at the bottom quartile of the uh, of the of the of the pie sharing it's going to be uh, quite uh, difficult and oppressive
1: difficult and oppressive I mean, you lived through uh, the last financial crisis sure. Goldman Sachs uh, obviously key part you know it very well when you say it took a long time it took about ten years to recover from the last financial yeah, that's crisis quite a long time yeah so given what you're saying is unprecedented what does recovery look like are you saying strap in for more than a decade of struggle well, here it's
11: well no no it's a little bit different there was a lot a lot of different things going on and there were you know it, it's it's always it's always at least a little bit different this is this is kind of much different and there you had the banks in trouble a lot of distress a lot of liquidity issues big credit issues nobody was sure who was able to pay their 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 debts as they arose and that took and, and then again, the financial system is the intermediary by which Fed accomplishes its activity. That's not impaired today. Actually, the consumer is starting out at a strong level. Uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, it's, it's going to be hard for uh, people to to have savings but they already have savings they're not going to increase it quickly because of inflation but they're starting in a much better place than we were then Mm -hmm. and the fed has very again powerful tools some of this will transition away some of the uh, supply chain issues again will go away um, china won't be locked down forever Um, the war will not go and the ukraine will not go on forever some of the and some of these things are a little bit stickier like energy prices And there are some elements of the supply chain that are going to be a lot stickier. I'll I'll give you an example. We were the beneficiary for a very long time of the globalization of the economy, which made goods and services cheaper because we took advantage of cheap labor in countries. Well, how good do we feel with what we've learned to be relying, and this was part of your last uh, talk uh, with, um, uh, with Secretary Buttigieg, how comfortable are we now to rely on those supply chains that are not within the borders of the United States that we can't control? Do we feel good about getting all our semiconductors from Taiwan, which is, again, an object of China?
1: Do you think we're headed towards recession?
11: Um, We're certainly heading, it's certainly a very, very high risk factor. And there's a, but I, you know, there's a path, it's a narrow path, but um, I, I think the Fed has very powerful tools. It's hard to finely tune them and it's hard to see the effects of them quickly enough uh, to alter it, but uh, I think they are. Um, I think they're responding well. I think it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a risk. If I were running a big company, I would be very prepared for it. If I was a consumer, I'd be prepared for it. But it's not baked in the cake.
1: All right, Lloyd Blankfein. Thank you for your insights. We'll be back in a moment. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs,
7: a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
1: Former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper is out with a new book called A Sacred Oath, which chronicles his time in the Trump administration. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to Face the Nation.
9: Margaret, great to be with you.
1: I want to talk to you about a number of things. But you did say recently uh, that after the events of January 6th, which took place when you were out of office, that you now consider President Trump a threat to democracy. The committee that's investigating January 6th is about to begin public hearings, and they've said they have in their possession a draft executive order um, that would have had the then-defense secretary seize voting machines, and that the Department of Justice and the Pentagon uh, would then be involved somehow in stopping the transfer of power. Do you think it's important for that committee to lay out these facts to the public?
9: First, let me extend my condolences, by the way, to the families and friends of those tragically murdered yesterday in Buffalo. Uh, but to your question, yes, I think the January sixth committee needs to get to the bottom of the truth of what happened on January sixth, the events leading up to it, and understand it so we there is a degree of kind uh, of of accountability. And secondly, we have lessons learned to make sure it doesn't happen again. It's absolutely important.
1: But it's, I mean, just even laying that out to you, it is kind of astounding to hear. Um, And in your book, you write General Milley actually had an agreement with the other uh, members of the Joint Chiefs, the, the lead military commanders in the country, to all resign if President Trump tried to use the military to stop the transfer of power. You write about personally being concerned that that's what he was trying to do. So you saw evidence or you had good reason to believe there was an attempt here to basically stage a coup? I had a lot of concern
9: about what might or might not happen in the months leading up to the election. Right. There was talk about conducting strikes against military strikes against against other countries. The president through the summer was talking about sending troops into uh, Seattle and Portland. And I write about in the final days, I have this private meeting with the head of the National Guard and General Milley. And I talk about what might or might not happen the day after the election, concerned that. There may be the use of the military somehow to influence the outcome. And look, I, there's been a lot of criticism about why I didn't speak up. It's because I wanted to be there on the spot, if any of these things happened, to be the circuit breaker, because the only two people in the United States that can deploy troops, U.S. military troops, are the president and the secretary of defense. And I was in that pivotal position to act if I thought something was, you know, mm-hmm. outlandish, irresponsible, or would affect the institution of DOD or our country. That's a, That's what it came down to for me.
1: So that's why you didn't resign. But why didn't you speak out as soon as you left office? I know you started writing the book within months, but why didn't you speak publicly about all of this?
9: Well, the the election was over. I think like many of us, I figured the president would would challenge the election like others have done in the past. And after a few weeks, it would be over and we'd have a peaceful transition of power.
1: But he did. There was an impeachment hearing about what happened with January 6th and about whether there were attempts to stop the peaceful transfer of power. You're saying you actually... We're worried about that yourself.
9: Well, I was concerned. You you know, you always have to think through alternative scenarios, what might or might not happen. And I would have spoken out if if called forward to do it. I I said on another network, I would have certainly spoken out if he had won uh, the election, but he didn't. And at that point in time, uh, you know, I was patiently waiting to see what would happen, make sure that the the peaceful transfer of power happened. As you know, I joined my other uh, uh, the living secretaries of defense, wrote an op ed on January 3rd, three days prior to the transition. Uh expressing our concern about the peaceful handover of power and warning the Pentagon, if you will, about the the importance of them doing their duty.
1: Um, You talk about and have spoken quite a lot this past week about the events in Lafayette Square. Right. Um, And it's an important bit of the public record. You were in the Oval Office with the president and he spoke about a very specific number, 10,000 of active duty troops, potentially being sent into the streets of Washington, D.C. I want to play a clip for you here, because I asked the then attorney general, Bill Barr, about exactly that. A senior administration official told our CBS's David Martin uh, that in a meeting at the White House on Monday morning, uh, the president demanded that 10,000 active duty troops be ordered into American streets. Is that accurate?
9: No, that's completely false. That's completely false. Uh, Sunday night. The president
1: did not demand that?
9: No, he did not demand that.
1: Why do you seem to have different recollections?
9: I don't know. You know, I read about this in my book, that Bill Barr and I have different recollections. Of course, if you go through my story, you'll understand that the president calls over to the Pentagon earlier that morning and talks about 10,000 troops. That's when I'm first made aware of this request. And uh, look, I don't know why we have different recollections. I think in all these cases, people hear or see different things. But I, I'm 110 percent confident of what the president was seeking that morning.
1: The former attorney general said it was completely false. Do you think that was an effort to deliberately mislead the public? I,
9: I don't know. I, I, again, people have different recollections. Uh, people have asked me about things that I simply can't recall. All I know is the way we defuse this is Bill Barr, to his credit, because he was a good partner on this stuff, put forward 5,000 law enforcement officers. And I put forward up to 5,000 National Guard to take care of this. I mean, do the math, 5,000 and 5,000. You're In trying my to mind,
1: retrofit this 10,000 arbitrary well, number.
9: Well, like, yeah, I'm trying to kind of give him his 10,000 without giving him 10,000 active duty troops. And we pulled it off. And thank goodness it was, it was the way to kind of get that down, get out of the room and get on with what we needed to do.
1: Are you concerned that if the former president stands for election, that he will surround himself with people who you're deeply critical of who uh, didn't try to short circuit. I mean, you were very critical. Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor. Uh, You write about the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. You talk about Stephen Miller, all people who were egging on some of these instincts.
9: Yeah, absolutely. He will. He figured this out in in, uh, 2020 after he beat impeachment. He talks about it. I describe this moment in the book where he thinks about the people he should put into office. And so, yes, that is a concern of mine if he runs and is reelected. Absolutely. But
1: should any of those people have any proximity to public office right now?
9: I don't think so, but that's my opinion.
1: Well, they're names that we're watching, and we will continue to cover Mark Esper. A lot more in this book. It is worth reading. Thank you. We will be right back. Watch the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell tomorrow night for an exclusive interview with the president of the company that makes the... Enfimil formula for babies. That's it for today. Thank you for watching until next week. For Vase the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were the mayor of Buffalo, New York, Byron Brown, the governor of that state, Kathy Hokel, Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg; former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and Senior Chairman of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, as well as Mark Esper, former Trump Secretary of Defense. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
7: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader.